This episode is brought to you by Crimped. This is the best app I have seen when it comes to self-coached training for rock climbing. Crimped has dozens of workouts crafted by world-class climbers and coaches that focus on all of the different facets of climbing performance and training, including workouts to guide your outdoor climbing. I just did a really fun collaboration with the guys at Crimped, and now all of you can try my three favorite outdoor bouldering workouts right there in the Crimped app. We've got one called Steven's Outdoor Bouldering Warm-Up, which is my go-to warm-up on a bouldering day. We've got Steven's Outdoor Limit Bouldering, which will guide you through my approach to projecting hard boulders. And finally, we've got Steven's Outdoor Strength Zone Bouldering, which will guide you through a strength-focused bouldering session. I've used that one a lot in Waco Tanks over the past few years with great results. And it's a great format for sending some of those second-tier boulders and building strength out there on the rock. Check out the Crimped app at crimped.com. That's C-R-I-M-P-D.com to get started and download the Crimped app for free. And type in Steven, S-T-E-V-E-N, into the search bar in the app to try my go-to outdoor workouts. That's crimped.com or find the Crimped app in the app store. It's totally free to try. Type Steven in the search and have fun out there on the boulders. This episode is brought to you by Rhino Skin Solutions, my go-to when it comes to taking care of my skin. My go-to products are the Repair Cream, the Performance Cream, and the Dry Spray. I have naturally sweaty skin, and I find the Performance Cream and the Dry Spray especially helpful when I'm sport climbing or climbing on long boulder problems, because if I can keep my hands from sweating, I don't have to stop and chalk up as often, that can make all of the difference on a pumpy sport climb or a long boulder. And I like to use the repair cream in the evenings most days. That's my go-to product. I just use it to help my skin heal between sessions on my projects. Whether you have sweaty skin like me and have trouble keeping chalk on your hands, or maybe you have dry, glassy skin and you have the opposite problem, Rhino Skin Solutions has products that are designed just for you and your skin type. If you want to level up your skin game, head over to rhinoskinsolutions.com and enter code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. That's rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off and start taking better care of your precious skin today. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt, and my guest today is Don McGrath. Don is a retired electrical engineer who became very interested in mental training for rock climbing and has now written several books. And in this conversation, we mostly focused on his book, Vertical Mind, that he co-authored with Jeff Ellison. We covered a lot of ground in this interview and talked about all things mental training. If you struggle with fear of falling or fear of failure, or if you're just interested in mental game and have never focused much effort in that area, there are many nuggets in this conversation, not just for beginners, I think for climbers at all ability levels. And if you relate to any of those things, I think you will really enjoy this one. I enjoyed this conversation quite a lot. Let's dive in. Please enjoy this deep dive into mental training for rock climbing with Don McGrath. All right, now we're back. There we go. All right. 
So where in the world are you today? I think I'm in the same place that I was last time I talked with you. I'm still in Waco Tanks, my same little campsite here. Uh, we're talking on February 23rd. I think I'll be here till the end of the month. So I'm coming down to the wire, wrapping up my trip here. Any uh, nemesis climbs that you're stoked to get before you leave? Um, luckily, no. This trip, um, people listening will know, I had an injury and I recovered from the injury and then decided to seek out climbs that were, you know, more bicep friendly because it was a bicep tendon injury. And that just kind of led me away from the things that I invested a lot of time in last year and didn't do and got me kind of off the beaten path. So that's been really great. I've been able to have a pretty good season in the last just few weeks. Um, and I think it's just because I've been trying things that suit me a little better than the Nemesis rigs. I haven't just gone back and beat my head against the same old things. So yeah, I think in my, in my final days, I will go back and try one of those things just to kind of check in on it. But I don't feel... Um, I don't feel as though I need to do it. I know it's going to be there next season. So yeah, I feel, I feel really good. There's a, there's a new hard one that I've been trying that I feel optimistic about and it may or may not work out in the time I have remaining. So we'll see, but yeah, it's been great. Those are the love hate things, right? Like, it's like, I love to get on that. No, oh, I hate it. <laughs> it's like the edge that we love. Right. You're a rifle climber. So I know, I know you have experience with that sort of thing. It seems oh, like yeah. rifle breeds that attitude more than most places. Rifle and Smith Rock. I was a Smith Rock guy. I have a very similar, very similar emotions about many climbs at Smith Rock. Just like, oh man, I, I think back and part of me wants to go back and try them again. And part of me just never wants to go back. It's just kind of funny. I climbed in Smith Rock once and my general, and I was only for like five days, but my memory, and this is a long time ago, my memory is that the holds get smaller the higher you go. Like, <laughs> course, always seems to be high. Oh, like, interesting. Always. It's like, <laughs> it must be the way it weathers or something, but there's so many times you, know, you start off, you're like, oh, this is good. And it's like you're on these little smudgy things going, what? Yeah, yeah. Not have to think about that. I'm sure it depends on the route, but there's probably some truth to that as well. That's funny. One thing I do think is true about Smith, which is why I haven't gone back yet since I moved into the van is I think the climb, the more I travel and the more I climb other places, the more I realize I think climbing gets less fun the harder you get at Smith Rock. I think mm. there's kind of a bell curve, you know, like every area kind of has like a sweet spot where it thrives. And it seems like in Rifle, the harder you climb, the more fun you get to have, you know, like the 9As look amazing in the, in the Wicked Cave and things like that. But at Smith, I think it kind of peaks around 13B. And those are like the most amazing routes at Smith. And then there's cool ones that, that are harder than that, but generally speaking, it just kind of falls off and gets less fun, more, you know, more unpleasant, sharp, more skin dependent, more tweaky. Yeah, that, that was my experience anyway. And it, it doesn't exactly make me hungry to go back and try those routes. I'd rather try other hard things that are more type one fun personally. But we'll yeah, see. Shelf Road is that way too. Shelf okay. Road. Yeah, I could see that. Shelf Road where the sweet spot there is like 12A, 12B. And quickly after that, it gets to be like tiny little monos and like horrible holds and like skin ripping. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe that's just the nature with less steep areas. Vertical. Yeah, I think, I think it's Yeah. True. Is that your home area these days? Are you based near yeah, there? Yeah, that's where we do. Yeah, that's where we do most of our climbing because it's just so close. I live in the springs, and so we'll we'll go down there, down there quite often. Nice. 
And how's your winter been? What do you do to, to stay sane during the winter? Do you switch to winter sports or are you climbing inside or just taking time away or... I guess Shelf Road is a winter spot, isn't it? Often it's climbing outside, but this winter's been an exception with this crazy weather from California that's been sweeping across. And uh, we haven't climbed outside since the beginning of December because the only climbable days seem to have been on the weekend. And we just don't go climbing on the weekend. It's just, we just don't like all the crowds and parking and everything. So, um, but it's just been December was cold, January's been cold, and so we've been out. So we've been in the gym. I've actually, it's been good for me because I hired a coach to kind of help me do the things that I don't want to do that I need to be doing oh, in order cool. to reach what I want to do this year. So that's, it's, it's been good. Do you mind if we dig into that a little bit? I'd be curious to hear what some of those things are that your coaches had you do that you wouldn't otherwise have spent time doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What do you, what have you been working on in the gym? Yeah. So you know, my general thing in the gym is I tend not, like I had never, I don't think I'd ever climbed anything harder than a 12A in the gym. Just because my experience with them has just been, they're like, they're unpleasant. They're sink mono pockets. And like, I don't know. I just have never really had a, a great experience. So that's kind of where, where I top out. And in general, I don't climb any more than like six routes in a day at the gym. I'll go, I'll warm up, I'll get on something, maybe one or two runs on something in, in that range or whatever, wherever my fitness is. So a couple things. One, I decided I really need to lose that that 60-year-old belly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, which has crept up on me over the past, I don't know, six, seven years and COVID just made it entirely worse. And I could look at myself in the mirror and go, you know, Homer Simpson's creeping up on you, Don. You <laughs> do something. So I quit drinking all alcohol. Okay. And I don't snack after 7 p.m. Okay. And that's that's saved me five pounds, but a lot of it, like more fat than five pounds. So that's wow. been really, really helpful. Just those two things. That's cool to hear. Yeah. I mean, it's just made it. And I don't care what else I eat during the day. Like I snack, I don't watch anything. But I, I guess from what I've read, that intermittent fasting kind of kicks in with that 12 hour without eating. And it's just been melting fat off of me which is wow and i've fought with it for a year it's not like i just threw caution the wind and was like i'm gonna eat cheetos all day you know but it's been really difficult so those two things made an enormous difference and it also has fed my motivation like i didn't realize that alcohol believe it or not it's it's a poison of some type right <laughs> so it was taking the edge off of some of my motivation so my motivation has been higher um but my coach also, so I only meet with them uh, at the most frequent every two weeks, but because of scheduling, sometimes it ends up being three or four weeks. And we go and um, he's had me climbing way more than I was. Okay. The volume for the first month was way higher. I was doing like 12 routes instead of my six. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and six, like half of those were hard you know they were like 11 plus or 12 minus which would have been i would usually just done one or two of those and i would you know didn't have to finish them but the idea was just to get that mileage just to get that get your body used to that and then so then then we switched to working some projects and i just like last week i didn't the first 12c i've ever done inside first ever and i haven't climbed 12c in nine years anywhere <laughs> nice that's right? awesome. Yeah. It's really, it's been incredible. 
part of it, I think, is just the fact of having a coach, mm. just somebody there who keeps you accountable, right? Like you go in, I go when I climb with him, it's like I'm with the best intention. Like I'm paying this guy, I'm going to make the most of this, I'm going to be prepared. I'm going to be in the right mindset when I go there. Whatever he says, I'm just going to take, you know, and I'm going to internalize it. I'm not going to be defensive. You know, I'm going to take whatever he says is, you know, helpful. Mm. So that's really, that's made a big difference for me. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. I have a couple follow-on questions that come to mind. First, I'm thinking of my dad when you, when you talk about, you know, cutting out alcohol and snacking and I'm just imagining my dad. I'm like, man, that would take away like 90% of his joy in life. No, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but he loves, and my mom too, they have whiskey time, you know, in the evenings, they finish dinner, he has a glass of wine. And then they uh, they each go to the the, the roll top desk, choose their whiskeys for the night. They go upstairs, they watch a show, they eat some dark chocolate, drink some whiskey. It's just you know it's the best. It's amazing. What did you replace it with? Did you have anything that made it easier to cut out alcohol? Did you replace it with something, or did you have to make any? You know, so so often our habits are connected, right? Like like whiskey time is not just about drinking whiskey. It's about them getting together, doing something fun, watching a show, relaxing, unwinding. Um, well, yeah. What was that transition like for you? It's not easy. It's not easy because there's, there's like you said, it's, 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 it's nuanced, right? It's not just making your mind up. I don't want to do this. And it's not like I was like had shakes and, you know, it wasn't like I was severely addicted to it, but you get in these habits, right? where come around dinner time, we would say, oh, you know, let me make a cocktail. We have a cocktail and then maybe we'd open a bottle of wine. And it's kind of what we did, my wife and I, it's kind of what we did. And so I started by replacing that cocktail with just like a diet ginger ale and lime juice and a quart of lime. Mm. And it's great. I mean, I just love the taste of it. It's great. It served the same purpose of having this time to come together and begin winding down. It just didn't have the alcohol in it. And, you know, I didn't care what my wife did. She could, you know, make her own choice. She could join me with that. And it just doesn't matter. And it was, it was a little bit of an adjustment, I got to say. Um, I thought I would have a harder time going to sleep, possibly. All these were like worries I had, like, what's this going to be like? Um, turns out I, I was, I was falling asleep earlier. Mm. I, my sleep even though I would get, because I also was drinking more water just because I, I don't even know why, but I just began drinking more, drinking more water. I don't know. <laughs> it wasn't even conscious, but I'd be up in the middle of the night a couple of times to go to the bathroom, but I would wake like feeling great, like 10 years younger. No, I am not, I'm not exaggerating that mm. at all. Wow. I would wake up excited about my day, regardless of whether it was doing a podcast or giving a talk or going climbing, or just working on a project around the house, uh, plowing the driveway. You know, I just would wake up with a lot more uh, excitement about what was going on. So it was really, and once I once I got on that roll of knowing how good I can feel, it became a lot easier, mm -hmm. a lot easier. You know, once I was like, wow, you know, I can either wake up foggy and like, uh, or I could wake up like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sparkle in your eyes, that zest, that zest for the yeah. day. That's awesome. And climbing, climbing well again, like made it just that much better, right? I mm. love to climb and it's been hard. And I just thought it was aging. You know, I thought, well, you know, it's just kind of what happens. 
but it's totally not. Mm. It's it's about fitness. It's about nutrition. It's about uh, feeling and being your best, which was difficult eating. And you eat late, you, you know, it has lots of lots of effects. And same thing with alcohol has lots of effects. Mm. The other question I wanted to ask you was about your goals. Why is it that you decided to hire a coach? And do you have a goal kind of guiding you as a North Star for, for the winter? And yeah, it, tell me more about that. What are you what are you hoping to do next year? Or yeah, what, what's the goal if you have one? So I turned 60 in July. And so 60 just seems like a big thing, you know, and, and I, and I, I look at that and I look where I'm in my life. I'm retired. I don't work anymore. I got some little project businessy things I do, but in general, I can do whatever the heck I want. Okay. And it's like, what is the one thing that my, my wife was like, where do you want to go for a trip for your birthday? 60th birthday. Like we went to France for her, one of her birthdays, like last year. And it was a great trip. I was like, you know, I really don't want to go anywhere. If I want to go anywhere, I want to go to some climbing places that I can get to and really get in the shape I was in 10 years ago. Mm. I, I, I want to get back there. And so I set myself the goal of climbing um, 12 plus 13 minus, which is kind of where I was. I did a 13B once in rifle. So to get back to that level. And that was, uh, that was, let's see, I was in my late 40s, I think, when I did the 13B. So I mean, I was, might have been 47. So that's a little over 10 years ago. And I, I think nine years ago, I did a 12D. So I was like, I want to get back there. That's my goal. 12D, uh, 12 plus 13 minus. So I was like, well, how the heck am I going to get there? If I continue to do what I'm doing, I'm not going to get there. I, I mean, it's the definition of insanity, they say, right? Continue to do the same thing, expect a different result. Mm. So I said, well, what can I do? What can I do? I said, well, I can hire a coach. So I don't know if you know Kevin Branford. I recognize, <clears throat> I recognize the name. I don't know why. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I've met Kevin. He was a, a famous as a young climber in his teens. Um, he was a you know ranked in the comp circuit way back when, and he works here at the local gym, and I've become friends with him. And um, I just like Kevin. Would you be my coach? He's like sure. Um, so I, I hired him. And that was just, a, there's a certain amount of commitment when you are laying out money and when you're making appointments to show up and be engaged with somebody and give your best and be open and listen and learn. So that was important for me mentally to make that shift. And then I got into that and then, well, January came around and I just saw this dry January thing. I was like, you know, that's another thing I can do that I think is going to make a difference in my base fitness. Cause I'm just a big believer in that the fundamental thing in climbing underneath everything else is your, is your general health and fitness. Mm. Like if that's off, everything else is going to be harder. So, and I kind of felt like I had some work to do on the, in the basement, you know? And so I went to work on the foundation in January and I've just been, I've been experiencing, you know, I have no doubt, barring any kind of injury or accident or something that, you know, I'll meet my goal this year. And I'm, I've already been thinking, well, what's beyond that? Oh, that's so awesome. I love that. Yeah. And it, it sure sounds like it. I mean, you said 12C in the gym and I don't know, um, you're a rifle climber. So I assume we're a little bit, and you're an engineer as well. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that we're similar in this way, but you know, you take away all those tricks and all those subtleties and things outside and go in the gym and have a 
you know, a root setter put simple holds on the wall. And I find, I find gym rope climbing to be like the hardest form of climbing. I just find it really, really hard. So if you can do 12C in the gym, you're on your way. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. And then the same day I did a 12B right next to it. And it's just like, I had, I, I just seen like, it's not like I just did one route, had a great day or something. It's like, no, I'm, I'm just feeling it. I know it down deep in my soul that I've just made scads of progress. And it's, it's not like I'm peaking. Yeah. I'm early. I'm early. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know where it's going to go and I'm excited to see. Hell yeah. That's awesome. All right, Don. Well, that was really fun. I, uh, I didn't expect to talk so much about, um, your climbing, but I think that was, I think that was a perfect way to start this conversation. We're, uh, we're going to be talking a lot about your latest book, the book that you wrote with Jeff Allison, Vertical Mind, a Psychological Approaches for Optimal Rock Climbing. And I think it'd be good to take a few steps back and hear how you got interested in writing this book and how that came to be. Because like I mentioned a second ago, you have this background in electrical engineering, you're a climber, you're retired now. And so it's, it's interesting that you've, you've taken... I'm just curious to hear about the winding path that led you to focusing on mental game and psychology for climbing, because that seems you know, like like a little bit of a right turn for an engineer. Um, you know, it sounds like you had a pretty traditional career, just a nine to five working as a director of engineering. So tell me a little bit about your background and how you got interested in this topic and why you chose to write this book. Yeah, absolutely. So I began climbing back in the early 90s. I went on a trip to Yosemite and after hiking for many days, it was like so bored of hiking that I went to the Curry company. They had a mountaineering school. I know I had no idea what that was. Turns out it was rock climbing. And so that was kind of when I began and I, I got back to my home in New York and discovered I was close to the gunks and the Adirondacks. So I just, I found, I fit into the community there and I just started doing a lot of trad climbing. And so that's kind of how I got started and when I got started climbing. And I love it. I've been doing it ever ever since, like without, without a break. If I have a month off, it's because I've had a surgery or something. So, uh, so I kind of, I became, became a director of engineering out here in Colorado where I currently live. That's my profession. I've got a, a bachelor's, master's, a PhD in electrical engineering and uh, just climbed every weekend whenever I, whenever I possibly could and was focused on climbing a lot in rifle ever since the early 2000s. And one thing I began to discover is that, uh, and I also really like thinking about my training. I, I, I was actually doing a, a blog for a while about everything I could learn about training. And it's now defunct, but I was writing a, a blog. I don't know, maybe five people listened to it or watched it <laughs> or read it, but yeah. I was doing this, right? And my wife, at my wife, uh, when she hit her, her age 50, she had an office job working for the Nature Conservancy. This back around 20, 2009. She decided that she was bored. Just bored with office work. And her real passion is, is cooking. And so, long story short, I encouraged her to quit her job because I was making plenty of money for us. And so, she quit and went to culinary school. For six months, she went to Boulder. I lived in Fort Collins. So she moved out of the house, leaving me with the dog. And so I just remember being so inspired by her taking that leap, right? That I was like, well, what's my next thing? What's my next thing? 
I was like, well, I'm getting older. I was 40 something at the time. And I wanted to be one of those, one of those athletes who was at, who was able to maintain my athleticism later in life because I was looking at it. And so I wrote my first book, which was 50 Athletes Over 50, where I interviewed 50 athletes over 50. Um, I wrote about it. And that began the journey of writing and learning about writing and speaking and all that stuff. So that was that was my big right turn, where I went from being pretty traditional to being now. I was doing that, but I also was writing a bunch of books. So I, I've written six books. And oh, wow. mine is, is the one that's that's done the best and gotten the most accepted and that I'm the most proud of actually. And so what, what happened, what led to vertical mind. So I wrote my first book and I learned, Hey, I like to write. And I began thinking a lot more about my own, my own climbing. And I was climbing a lot in rifle at the time. And what I was finding is I would one hang my projects a lot more than what I felt I should. You know, I would get this close and I would one hang them like five times. And then when I do them, they would be really easy. Like mm. I'd sometimes like clean them also and not fall. So I was like, what is with that? Yeah. It wasn't that I wasn't strong enough, right? If I could do it twice and this happened a number of 13s I've done, I'd actually done twice in the day when I did them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah. I'm, it's, I was strong enough. I probably was strong enough three times ago. But I, I decided it probably was here. It probably was mental. And so I started reading everything I could about psychology and uh, athletic performance, whether it be in running. Matt Fitzgerald's done some great work in running. I read the, the things about climbing. I read everything I possibly could. And I started writing a blog about it. I started using that in my blog. So I happened to be climbing one weekend in Rifle. And I, I threw a friend. I ended up uh, climbing with Jeff Ellison. And Jeff's also a great climber, but, and he's a psychology professor from Adams State University. Mm. So over a campfire after we were climbing all day, and I was telling him about what I was doing, how I was experimenting on myself with some of the things that I was learning, and I was writing some articles. He says, you know, my research is about um, shame theory and has a lot to do with fear of failure and fear and performance. And I was like, wow, that's cool. So we... We drank a lot of margaritas and we talked a lot about it. And that led to us getting together. Like the next week we said, Hey, we should write a book about this thing. It'd be really cool. So um, I phoned up my friend, Fred Knapp said, Hey, we, we want to put together a manuscript. You're accepting. He's like, yeah. So nine months later we submitted the manuscript and, and the rest is history. That's awesome. That's great. Um, it's funny. You the, the first thought that came to mind when you were telling that story, you said that you know you'd one hang something in rifle a five thirteen in rifle like five times, and immediately I was like, oh, that wasn't that's not nearly as bad as I was expecting. <laughs> just given <laughs> given all the stories I've seen and heard and and experienced firsthand in rifle, where you know friends have one hang one hung roots like fifty times, you know, over multiple seasons or whatever. So um, yeah, I just kind of chuckled inwardly at that. But no, that's that's really great. Um, I have a list of topics in front of me that relate to the book and we'll probably bounce all over the place here, but let's start with shame theory. I, I just think that those two words together are, are really intriguing. I, I, I know that there's something relatable there for all of us. Um, I'm sure, you know, a lot of it ties into our climbing, but I'm sure there's there's something there that, that we can all learn from in our lives in general. But um, yeah, tell me a little bit more about shame theory. Did you 
get introduced to that through Jeff? Is that his area of focus? And um, how has learning more about that impacted you personally in your climbing or or elsewhere? Well, yeah, I learned about I learned about that in, in the climbing context from from Jeff. And I mean, the basic idea is that you know you're confronted with some kind of a challenge, and there's multiple ways you can react. You can react by running away. You can react by responding violently. Right? There's there's many different ways you can react, and some are some are fruitful and some are not. And so, and these and these things are there are scripts inside of us, and that's why each one of us reacts differently. And I, I had come across this in my working life. Um, and through a book called Crucial Conversations. And it, it's about how to have difficult conversations because as a manager, you have to have those, unfortunately, every once in a while. And um, same thing. It's like, if you if you want the person to react in a certain way, there's ways to approach a difficult conversation. There's ways to not approach a difficult conversation. And there's ways to educate people and coach people to respond productively. So, but in the climbing context, it's, yeah, I could just get, I could, I could one hang my thing three times, get frustrated and walk away and never do it. Right. Sure. Yeah. It's not, not productive. I can get really mad and kick the wall and bruise my toe and be, and be out for four weeks. Right. That's also not productive. So that was, that was a context of shame theory. And I, I picked up on that, on that from Jeff. Um, and, but the main thing that, kind of led from that research that Jeff was focused on and that a lot of our conversations have been about is the fear, fear of failure, mm. which is a main topic of the book. And it's also something that that gets in the way of a lot of our climbing, fear, fear of failure, fear of that, of not being accepted by um because there is a deep thing inside of us that you know you go back hundreds of years and we lived in packs basically right we lived in tribes and if we got rejected by the tribe what was going to happen to us oh yeah we were we were screwed we're toast right toast yeah we we'd be the predators out there would take care of us right or we'd starve or something so inside of the way we're programmed is is some of that's inside of every one of us the minute we pop out of the womb so and and those and those can be trained and mm. so that's what jeff and i have really focused on um is one of the one of the topics in the book that we focus a lot on yeah in our uh, in our pre-interview you said that one of the reasons why you wrote the book was just this fascination with how overlooked the mental aspect of climbing is and then you said something interesting. You also mentioned how simple it is. And I, I, I kind of I kind of raised an eyebrow at that a little bit. I thought that was interesting because I, I think I just want to maybe have you expand on that more because um, maybe once you get into it, it is simple. But I think the reason that people generally focus more on physical aspects of training and not mental training is because it seems really huge and complex and where do I even get started here? And it's less tangible. You know, we can't see measurable progress over time. We can't have a trainer write out reps and sets and things like that. So can you expand on that? Um, what is it that you, um, what is it that you meant when you said that, you know, it's the mental aspect of climbing is overlooked and it's also simple. Can you expand on that? 
Yeah, you know, if you, you have a conversation with anybody in the gym about their training, and generally they're talking about, yeah, you know, I'm doing arc training, or you know, I'm I'm trying to do thirty. Right, one guy I climb with, or I know at the gym, he's like, yeah, I did twenty five routes yesterday. I'm doing thirty today. I'm like, oh my oh god, my god. <laughs> wow. I don't know what you're trying to accomplish. <laughs> but you know, there's a lot of focus on you know fingerboarding and then the physical aspect. But let's let's look at what 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 can you do in that realm? Okay, you can develop muscular strength, right? You challenge a muscle, you feed it, hydrate it, and a few days later, it's a little stronger, right? That, that's basically, it. it's pretty predictable. Um, muscular endurance, same thing. You work it for long periods of time and you keep feeding it, keep giving it hydration and, and you know, it, it increases. You can work on flexibility, which is also a very physical thing. Um, you can work on your cardiovascular fitness, you can work on maybe this the strength of your tendons and such the connective tissue. That's it. Right. That's pretty much your world, right? If that's now let's talk about mental training. Virtually every emotion, every movement, and every thought originates in your brain. So movement, emotions, and thoughts. Okay, so all originates, so it's virtually all mental training. Let's look at what, what encompasses that. Okay. All technique training is mental training. Mm. So, and that, that I, I could sit here and I can name 20 different techniques that you could train, right? Sure. Yeah. There's the fear aspects, overcoming fear of falling, overcoming fear of failure. I mean, it's just, it, it is huge, but think about the opportunity if you don't train that, mm. right? You've narrowed your world down to this. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. So you're just saying there's just a huge amount of untapped potential. So it's it's simple in the sense that we can make really big progress just from shifting our focus towards. And it's vast. It's vast, and it also is simple. But it's only simple when you make it simple. Okay, let's give you an example. Yeah, let's please. Let's I, talk I more about this. Of, let's say I have a fear of falling. Okay. Okay, I get I get to a spot on a climb. And I can predict it. I'm going to get there. If I don't know what to do, I'm going to say take. Because I don't want to even take that four-foot fall or 10-foot fall. Um, pretty common, right? I mean, anybody listening should not feel bad if you have that. Okay? You shouldn't feel bad. Like, most of us have that. <laughs> That's the reason we're still here probably, right, to some extent. But I can train that. I can train that. But I got to, I got to pick out one thing at a time. I don't want to be working my uh, footwork technique and this kind of resting technique and work on it. No, you pick one thing at a time um, and you and you over you change that script. We talk a lot about what scripts are uh, in, in the book, but they're basically responses to your environment. So you're in, a, you're in an environment, there's a situation and a com little computer program runs in your brain that says, this is how I respond. And you respond that way. And so if I, if my, Script says take, I'm going to take. You can change that, but it takes specific training where I, I have to, like in a safe environment, the gym is great for fall training. I learn how to fall. I take some falls because most of the time, and I'm interested in your thought on this, but most of the time before we fall, if we're fearful, it, it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's like you're falling on a chain, right? You think it's <laughs> this big bone rattling, smashing, horrible thing where you're going to go smashing in, flip upside down. And 
Like that hardly ever happens. I mean, when you're good at falling, falling is really uneventful. Yeah. And yeah. in general, it's it's it really is uneventful. And once you've fallen tens of thousands of times, it's it's fine, right? But we have this mental imagery that, oh my God, I, I could break an ankle and I could smash around. So, but you build up an I call it the arsenal of uneventful falls. Mm, I like that. You build up an arsenal of uneventful falls. And you even begin experimenting with not just falling straight down, but maybe falling off to the side a little bit. You know, maybe falling with your back to your last protection, just to feel, get that experience in a very safe environment. And Jim is great for that. Um, so you pick one thing out, one thing you want to work on that you feel is most holding you back, and you focus on creating a more productive script around that. Mm. And kind of once you've once you've kind of able to do that in the moment, like when you're really climbing, you can kind of put that one on the back burner and say, I'm going to revisit you in six months, a year, and I'm going to do a refresher course. Mm. And you go on to the next thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's funny. I was just talking to a friend last night about sport climbing because we're here in Waco and we were talking about bouldering and stuff. And I was like, hey, do you ever sport climb? And he's like, you know, I, I think I would really like it if, and I think I would do a lot of it if I could ever finally convince myself that I wasn't going to get hurt. He said something along those lines, you know, and I, I kind of thought for a second and I was like, man, I mean, I, I really, I really deeply believe that sport climbing is safer than bouldering. Um, you know, bouldering, you hit the ground every time you're coming off in weird trajectories you know, it's, you, you hit the ground. So, so the unknown, like there's, there's just more things that can happen. You hit the pads weird, you break an ankle or something like that. Things like that happen. Whereas sport climbing, I mean, I've seen accidents happen, but I've seen, I've, you know, taken thousands of falls. I'm sure I've seen thousands of falls and the, the times where something happens where someone like gets slammed and hurts an ankle or flips upside down and hurts themselves. Those are absolutely like the you know, the, the wild outliers, they're, they're so far out of the norm, but I was kind of thinking, I was, you know, talking to this guy and just thinking like, is it possible to convince someone of that until they've just done the reps and experienced it themselves, you know, cause he knows he's a smart guy. He knows rationally that the ropes are strong, that the equipment's safe, that his belayer is not going to drop him all this stuff. So it's not rational. I mean, it is in the sense that, you know, being up high and falling into the void is scary. Um, but yeah, it's, is there any way to shortcut that or is it just a matter of giving yourself practice and putting yourself in a situation where you're just, you know, writing that script over and over and over again, hardwiring that script that falling is safe, falling is safe, falling is fine or whatever it is. So the, re the reason he feels bouldering is safer is because he has a strong script around it that he has experienced that has proven to him that he you know, it's, it's, it's safe given whatever his definition of acceptable, acceptable safety is, right? Why he thinks sport climbing is more dangerous is it's all just fear. It's not based on a lot of experience. I'll tell you a story about uh, someone that um, just after I wrote Vertical Mind, this woman, Gail, uh, called me up. She lived in New York and she's like, she got my contact information. She's like, Don, I want to fly out to Colorado. I want you to train me for a weekend. I've got a horrible fear of falling and I'm, I get a terrified. She climbed in the gongs and she's like, I can climb 5'11", but I can barely climb a 5'7 without soiling myself. Mm. So, and it keeps her away from doing a lot of things she wants to do. I said, 
scale, don't hop on a plane. Let's just get on the phone first, right? And so I got her on the phone <clears throat> and I said, I said, so what's going on? What what really what's going through your mind when you are getting ready to get on that five eight, whatever it whatever it is. She was aspiring to lead five nine in the gunks. That's what she wanted to accomplish. I was like, well, what goes through your mind? She's like, I'm just afraid I'll freeze. I'm, just, I'm afraid I'll freeze. I said, okay, so tell me about the time that you froze. Tell me about it. She's like, well, there's this one time and climb Andrew and I got up there and I got to this one spot and I, I was going to freeze and I was just really terrified. And I said, so what happened? And she's like, well, I ended up doing the move. And I said, so you didn't freeze. I mean, you're, obviously you're here right? You're, you're not frozen up on a climb somewhere. So we, I just kind of asking her, like, tell me an example. Like, when has this ever really happened to you? Mm. And it never happened. Never happened. And so what I encouraged her to do, since she really wanted to be able to accomplish her goal, I said, go put yourself in that situation. Go with a, go with a partner who you know can take over if you... And she was experienced enough. She could back off. She was skilled enough. I was like, you know, if you get up there and you're scared, just like have your partner take over. Like, so it made it really safe for her. There was no like, oh my God, I'm going to freeze. And it's so, no, you're, you're just going to plan B it, right? That became our phrase. Do you plan B it? No, I didn't. And so then, you know, a couple of weeks later, she led a 5-8 and I got her on a, a call and she's like, oh, it's a total fluke. It was a total flu. I got on this plane and I, I, I just got there and I took a deep breath and I knew I didn't have to do it if I didn't want to. And I went up and I did the thing right. And then she had a fluke again, like two weeks later. And so she began slowly to build up that experience. And now she leads five nine, like no problem. She's even done five tens in the gun. So mm. um, there, there is, it's understanding that irrational fear. Like what is the crux? What's at the bottom? of that irrational fear and looking at it and coming to the realization, yeah, it's total BS. Mm. It's BS. And I'm letting baloney, I'm letting a total thing that doesn't exist, I'm letting it stand in the way of something I really want to do. But in order to really move forward, you do have to get the experience. Like your friend, mm. in order to really become proficient at it, he's got to get on the rope and take, you know, just learn. Like, no, this isn't bone rattling. This is like really mellow. That's the way to really move forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I what I hear you saying is that we looking for evidence. I guess like when we have a script, a, an unproductive script. I'm sure that's something we're going to talk about more in a second here. But when we have an unproductive script that's just seems hardwired into our brain, it's tempting to kind of stray away from it. It feels scary to go there, but it sounds like the secret is to actually look at it more closely and challenge it and look for evidence. Like, is there evidence that this is actually true? And, you know, 99 times out of a hundred, they just kind of unravel before our eyes. Like, Oh, there's, there's nothing really, nothing really beneath that fear. Or maybe there is, maybe something happened and, um, but it was a fluke and, and, you know, it's, it's time to, challenge that experience and and ask yourself like is that something that happens every time or was that just a weird situation where maybe i wasn't experienced enough to to handle that situation safely or whatever it is but yeah. what you're describing is exactly right so these scripts live in our subconscious okay you can think of your mind as um it's it's more complex than this so i'll make it real simple there's the conscious mind which is like what's what's above the water in an iceberg 
it's really limited, right? It's where creativity happens. It's where critical thinking happens, planning, the things that are, that are human, really, you know, that are uniquely human, um, kind of reside in that, in that conscious mind. Then everything else we do is in the subconscious. Everything else we do in the subconscious mind. And if it's kind of invisible to us and good thing, right? We have scripts around brushing our teeth or on driving a car. And if we had to be conscious of all that stuff, we, you know, we'd be eaten alive by predators, right? So um, that what you just described though is taking that script that and Albert Ellis is the psychologist who came up with Ellis's ABCs. Actually, it's A, B, C, D, E is this process we talk about in vertical mind. But it's taking that script that lies in the subconscious, moving it up and looking at it in the conscious mind, where you can look at it critically, where you can, A, become aware of it, right? Like, this is holding me back. You can debunk it, which is his D in the ABCD, is debunk it. Look for evidence that either supports it or refutes it. And in general, you find it's just baloney, that there's no substance to it at all. And once you debunk it, then you can make a plan to start addressing it. Mm. And it does take that conscious effort to train. It's not going to happen by just thinking either, right? These scripts are strong. And I like to think of it as, you know, you got to paint over them, like with repetition. Like you got to take not just two falls, right? You actually have to take hundreds of falls, <laughs> right? To, to, to right. build up that arsenal of falls and just paint over that. You know, I picture moving your hand across um, a piece of, of wood and having it catch on something. Way to get rid of it is you paint over it, paint over it, paint over it. Pretty soon it's all lacquered. Mm. Can we go back to your one hanging in rifle? I'm curious if you have, uh, I'm sure you've reflected on this. What was the script that was holding you back with one hanging those 513s? So it was um, really just fear of failure. Bottom line, it was fear of failure. I would avoid getting on stuff. You know, I'd be like, oh, I think I hear thunder. You know, if you're climbing rifle in, in the summertime, you know you're going to hear thunder like almost every day, right? In July <laughs> and August, it's just going to be there. And so you can either do what most people do. You say, well, I'll get on it anyways. I could just lower off if, you know, it breaks out. But I'd be like, oh, yeah. Or I'd be like, oh, you want to go over to this other area? Yeah, I don't have to do my project today. Mm. You know, just the thought of going and like going painful, right? It's, it's, <laughs> you're working hard. Mm. And so at the bottom of it, it was a fear of failure that was kind of holding me back. How did that manifest in one hangs, do you think? Like what was happening when you were actually on the wall, you know, getting up towards the crux? A lot of times I would avoid it. So I would stretch it out over time. And you know, if if you want to prolong like getting a root, just stop getting on it, right? And <laughs> yeah. you're going re to regress, right? Because right. it's really subtle at your limit. At least for me, it was so like the difference between success and failure was like minute. Where I still remember this root pumparama, where there was one spot where I had a like, and I had a pretty good hold, but my foot had to come up to like eye level, and I had to like hit this one little black spot. <laughs> and drop into a knee bar like sideways at i think what most people find is the is the crux in the middle and it was just like minute like the difference between hitting it and unhitting it or not hitting it was very small and so if i took two weeks off of it you know i'm gonna have to redo 
like a lot of that relearning that subtlety. So I would stretch it out just by my choice to be in avoidance mode. Got it. And also, you know, on the route, often I would have unproductive thoughts. And this this I really trained myself. And I've been using that recently. I've been re reinvigorating this training in my sending these things in the gym where when you're on a climb and you're thinking about what's between you and the anchor, is that helpful or hurtful? I wasn't sure if this is a rhetorical question or not. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, it seems seems hurtful. You don't want to be distracted from the moment that you're in, the move that you're doing right now, I would, I would think. Yeah, you can only climb where you are. I mean, that's all like, and the more focus I could put on climbing this one move, right? The more fo I can shift that focus and make my world small to be focused on that, the more likely I'm going to pull it off. Mm. If I'm thinking about how I didn't rest long enough below, or maybe my foot slipped and I'm kind of like wigged out a little bit, or I'm thinking, oh, the crux is really higher and I'm feeling kind of more tired than I should right here, right? I mean, all these things just eat up that mental energy and and it makes it, makes it much harder. Mm. So um, I, the most productive thing that I did, the first thing that I really found a lot of success with was having the mantra and climbing in a way such that I was just one move at a time. One move at a time. One move at a time. And I tell myself, like, while I'm going to the bathroom, getting ready for my red point attempt, right? It's like, just got to climb one move at a time, one move at a time, one move at a time. And it's a mantra that pushes other thoughts out of my brain, right? Because you can only have one thought at a time. And so when I, when I, when I train people, that's one of the things I train them is to develop their own thought replacement. Mm. So that those unproductive thoughts don't take up that space. You know, what is, and it's different for everybody. Mine just happens to be one move at a time, one move at a time, one move at a time. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Did that, I'm curious, obviously that helps you when you're on the wall. Um, you just mentioned going to the bathroom and rehearsing that mantra before you even pull onto the climb. Did that also help you with that avoidance? Just realizing like, yeah. oh, I only have to focus on one. You, you, totally. It makes totally. sense because you're not thinking of this route as this big, scary, huge thing. All of a sudden it's just each individual move. And Yeah, my problem was not on the climb at all. My problem was the 30 minutes leading up to it. Mm. Right? And and I began my, I, I created this pre-climb ritual for myself. And it's really powerful and I've used it a lot. And now it's almost like second nature you know mm. there's just step you go through to get you from when you're not climbing you know when maybe you're belaying someone maybe you're leaving the car to when you are climbing that's the critical time when you could just mentally fry yourself or just decide to bail or right that's the time once most most climbers get on the wall most of them are kind of okay mm. Uh, interesting. You know, once you're 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 in it, right, and you've done it thousands of times, it's that that like leading up period that most people don't train, and uh, where things can really go awry. For me, the most important thing is getting on a climb with that calm mindset, that one move at a time mindset, where that's all I can do. All I have to do is one move at a time. It doesn't matter. I don't care who's watching. I don't care what the result is. And my job is just one move at a time and it breaks I can do one move at a time. And, I, and honestly, I'm detached from the result. I don't care if I fall at the fourth pole, fifth pole. I'm just like one move at a time is my only task. And you know what happens? 
What's that? It takes care of itself. Mm, yeah. I just, I send stuff way faster. Yeah. I'm detaching from the result, yet I get better results. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting. It's different, slightly different language, but it's um, it's almost exactly what Hazel Finley talked about doing. I think on Magic Line, where um, you have these like stances, and it's really easy to get in your head about the next really technical section on that route. And her her mantra was be with each move, just be with each move, be here and now, be be here with each move, one move at a time. Yeah, incredibly similar there. Tell me more about your pre-climb ritual. I know that's something that you teach to other people. Is it as simple as what you just laid out, just getting in that one move at a time headspace, or are there other elements of it as well? And and is it universal? Do you think that most people could benefit from practicing this pre-climb ritual? I have 100% certainty that anyone will benefit from it. Awesome. Okay. And you know, it's not like something you have to invest a ton of time or effort into. It's like so easy. And, and this is one thing I want to bring up. This stuff is pretty easy. Like, you don't have to worry about pulling a tendon, straining <laughs> your hamstring, right? Yeah. Like breaking an ankle. I mean, most of the stuff is just, it's it's pretty low investment with, with really big benefits. So yeah, my pre-climb ritual, the first part of it is just as you're, as you're approaching the time when you're up. Okay. And that can be different for mountaineering. It can be different for bouldering, right? It's going to be contextual and it's different for every person. For some people, it's when they put their shoes on. For some people, it's when they leave the car. But from when you're up, that's when your pre-climb ritual starts and you start with the slow, deep breathing. What do you mean by up? Up to climb. Okay. I see. I see. When you're up to climb, when it's your time to attempt whatever you're doing. Got it. Okay. And slow deep breathing is a great way to, we can mechanically do it, right? It's a great gift we have from mother nature. We can bring our level of excitement down to a pretty consistent spot, just mechanically by breathing slowly and deeply. So then you start by just bringing that down, just slow deep breathing. And everybody can do that, right? Like I said, this is not hard. And then um, safety check whether it be making sure your pads are in the right places, your spotters are not eating a sandwich, you know, whatever that means to you, whether you're, you know, you're tied in, you do your safety check with your, with your climbing partner, previewing the climb. And this not only is a short-term good habit, it's actually a long-term good habit because it starts building up. Because when you're done with the climb, it's going to reinforce things you predicted on how things were going to feel. And it's going to maybe change your mind. And so over time, we get really good at visualizing roots, which is going to help us. So preview the route. Again, it's 30 seconds. Like you're only looking at the first 30 feet. You can't do anything more than that, right? Then it's the thought replacement, whatever that thought replacement is. Just for me, it's one move at a time. Some people are just breathe. Some people say breathe, mm. breathe, breathe. It's something that just its main thing is to chase away all those unproductive things like, oh, I'm not sure I feel good today. Or, oh, well, so-and-so sent, I feel the pressure to send, right? Oh, there's the dog barking, whatever it is, right? Um, thought replacement. And then just before you start, I, I just like this, uh, a little levity. I just, I have a, 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 just a trigger phrase. I just say, all righty then. <laughs> and that's my, and that's my, I'm going to start climbing now. Yeah. Like, this is really it right? And Jeff says, it's just climbing. Mm. 
you know, so it just kind of breaks any tension that remains and signals I'm going. Do you say that Kevin, out loud? My coach says, Kevin, my coach says, I'm going this way. <laughs> <laughs> and we chuckle and we get to it. One of them, I, I don't remember who did this, but uh, one that always made me laugh was someone I climbed with would go, see you later. <laughs> Just get on the climb. <laughs> see you later. See you later. I love Kevin's. I'm going this way. Yeah. <laughs> I laugh every single time. See, that's something you say out loud. All righty yeah. then. Okay. I go, oh, like Jim Carrey, the best I can do. All righty then. <laughs> and, you know, I like that. I like that. And then I'm one move at a time. Like, and once I'm climbing and I'm just going through this one move at a time and climbing one move at a time, everything else takes care of itself. Mm. I'm going to fall or I won't, right? And all that, and falling is going to happen more often if I'm not in the moment. Like drawing all together, all my skills, all the things I know, whether I've been on the route or not before, just drawing all that in the time. So here's, here's a little thing. So first big result I got from my mental training very early on before I even wrote vertical mind with Jeff is I was on a trip to, um, the Cayman islands, Cayman's Cayman Brack. And I was, uh, I was climbing with my friend, John, and I was in this mode where I was practicing on myself. And at the time I was really focusing on being in the moment, like climbing in the moment to the point where I was grabbing hold of holds and like really getting into like seven levels of separation from Kevin Bacon, right? I'm just like <laughs> feeling every crystal. I'm just like optimizing my thought, where my thumb was going. I was just way deeper than I probably needed to go, but I was really just trying to do this for learning. And I just was sending stuff left and right. Because mm. like the second try... I like knew where that crystal was for the thumb catch. And there's one route in particular that I'm remembering. It was like a Buffalo gals or something like that. Uh, Buffalo soldiers, I think. Was it. I just, there was like this really crappy hold, but there's like a thumb catch, like a little crystal. And I was so in tune with it. When I got on a second try, I just grabbed it. And I, I just knew. Now I just got, grab that thing, grab that crystal, make the move, boom, hmm. I just sent it. So I started seeing results very quickly. Nice. That's awesome. Um, let's talk about most common scripts, most common unproductive scripts, and then common productive scripts that can replace those. Do you see trends with this stuff? Do you see a lot of people reach out to you having the same sorts of unproductive scripts? I do. What are, what are some I of do. the most common ones that come up again and again? There's two of the most common the two of the most common, and I and and I, I often talk when I'm speaking. I I gave a talk at the Boulder Rock Club maybe a month ago, and at another gym up in Boulder, <clears throat> and when these always come up, they always come up. So it's the the script like when you're climbing a route, typically a sport route is kind of the, the how mostly it comes up, and you hit a spot where things are going pretty well, and your client they're climbing on something that's is going to, they know is going to be hard for them, but not crazy. They know they're not going to be hanging on every bolt. They reach a spot where they don't know what to do. And they say, take. And, you know, obviously if you know something's way hard for you, you're already, you know, you're going to have to take, it's just a matter of when, right? Like if I get on a 13, I know I'm going to take it. So I don't consider that to be that unproductive, but let's say I'm, let's say I'm climbing 12A. And I get on a 12A that I've never been on before and I'm on sighting it. 
it's very unproductive for me to have the script script that just says take when I don't know what to do. Mm. It's like the least productive thing I can do. So that's one where without even trying, like without even just going for it and taking the fall, without even going up and touching that little dab of chalk, you know, and taking the eight foot fall, whatever, right? You just say take immediately. And then you hang on the end of the rope and you're like, damn it. And then you go up and you reach and you find out that little thing of chalk was actually a good hold. How many mm. times has that happened to you? Yeah, totally. And you kick yourself in your butt. Okay, so that's a very common one. And that's that's a very easy script to repaint. Because that's probably happened happen because of a fear around falling. Otherwise, why wouldn't you just go and try, right? If you're going to take a little fall on a sport route. I mean, fundamentally, probably what's behind that is a fear of falling. And so attack the fear of falling, solve that, right? You'll go for it. And there was a great quote by Lynn Hill from an interview in Climbing Magazine. And she said that when, whenever she hits a spot where she doesn't know what to do, she always goes for it. She always goes for it. And she's just found over time that like 98% of the time, it works out like she pulls the move. And so she's developed a very strong script about always oh, go for it because 98% of the time it's going to work out. Mm. And so um, it is possible to train that. It's possible to um, develop the mindset around developing an alternate script. Like, I'm just going to go touch that little dab of chalk. And then, uh, you know, then if you fall, you fall, right? It, but that's a way more productive activity than just saying take and hang it, right? Mm. That's, or just even taking the fall is more productive. Because right? at least you're doing something productive that's going to help you in your climbing. So uh, that's a very common script. Another common script is the one that I suffer from, which is, um, or actually this was related to my script. So one guy was saying how uh, that root pumperama and rifle, he wants to get on it. Like he thinks it's the next good step for him. and But he goes there and there's always a big posse. Mm. There's always like people in line and, you know, it's like in the center of the arsenal and like right. everybody's watching. And so he's like, I just, I just want to get there and, and flail around and be the guy who's like a Gumby, right? Right. There's, there's also like probably five people that warm up on it because they've done it a thousand times and yeah, bare feet, bare drink, feet. After yeah. drinking a six pack. There's all kinds <laughs> yeah, of stories, yeah, about totally. it, right? Like yeah. all kinds of stuff. Um, and I had this a number of years ago, working on survival of the fittest in the gunks. And it's a classic 13A. I think Scott Franklin was the first person to solo 13A in the US. And it was that climb. It's a short, like 45 foot 13A. And, but it's like, there's always a posse there on the weekend. And I didn't get on that for years because I was scared. And so this guy brought up that same thing. And, and I asked him, so, you know, what, what would happen if you got on it and you went bolt to bolt and you hung all over it? Like, is it really what other people are going to think? He's like, yeah, you know, I'm like, okay, I got, I got some tough love for you. They don't care. Mm. They don't care. Totally. Really? They don't like when they're at home having their beverage of choice or eating, they're not going to be thinking about you. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. No, they're not going to be thinking about you. Yeah. Uh, but we all like, and this is a human nature thing. We're all like the world revolves around us and it doesn't, you know, our world revolves around us, but other people's world does not revolve around us, you know, unless you're a parent, 
which case that changes the game. But, you know, people don't care. I mean, in general, if he did that, here's, I, I challenged him. I said, you know what? People are probably thinking if you're working on something, because you know what? Before they were able to do in bare feet, they were exactly where you were. They suffered on it or another climb, right? They suffered. They, they'd be like cheering on. And the more you worked on it, the more psyched they'd be for you. There'd be people giving you high fives when you got down. You said, dude, that was awesome. Yeah, I remember my first try. And they'll, they'll start talking about themselves, right? So they just don't care. Yeah. And so uh, having that pre-climb ritual where all your art, it's like one move at a time. Like, yeah, dog barking, fine. Yeah, people watching, fine. Nobody really cares. That's great. Yeah, thanks for that. I uh, I had a thought that came up when you were talking about Lynn Hill and onsighting and saying take. Um, one of my favorite pieces of onsighting advice I've ever gotten was from my friend Justin, who's very, very good at onsighting. And uh, it was just be curious. Just that that's the little mantra. Just be curious. Just be curious. Just be curious. And I find that if I'm, you know, cruxing out on an onsite, getting pumped, it's hard to down climb. It's hard to know what to do next. Um, focusing on curiosity is is really helpful. It kind of pulls you out of that, like, you know, that kind of panic, that urgency of I need to figure it out. Time's clicking, you know, or time's, time's ticking by. It's just, just be curious, you know, think of it as a puzzle and then you might see some little clue that guides you towards the right sequence or whatever it is. But yeah, I, I forget about that one too often, but, but it's, it's a really good one that's kind of stuck with me. And every time I remember that, I find it really helpful. So here's a really actionable drill that I've taught in some of my workshops that exactly helps you do that, but it's the mechanics of it. Like if you do this, you'll develop a habit of doing it. When you get to, when you get to a spot where you're able to like stop and rest somehow, or you, and it could be below a crux, just look all around while you're red, while you're shaking, while you're breathing, just take in the whole landscape. Like, look, just a couple times each direction. Just look. You're not doing anything else, right? You're not, you know, you're, you could look and look at the scenery, but just look, look and get an inventory of all the things, all the resources you have. And this came to me when I, I, I fell on some climb. It was a shelf road and I fell. I pulled myself back on and I looked down and there was like an edge this big, like right at my knee. Like all I had to do was bring a foot up on that and step on it. And mm. I didn't need very big handholds to reach the next one. And so it just, I wasn't, I didn't have the open focus, which is kind of what you're talking. Be curious, you know, open your focus. And then when you move, you close your focus and it's one move at a time. So oscillating between open focus when I'm in this, you want to call it a rest or a spot where I'm, I'm pausing, working out my strategy, open focus, and then close focus. Mm. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Rumple. Rumple is on a mission to introduce the world to better blankets. And I think they've done that. My Rumple blanket is literally one of my favorite things I own. It's so cozy. It's like having the coziness of a puffy sleeping bag with you wherever you go. Rumple's original puffy blanket is made of the same materials as your favorite outdoor gear. It pairs durable 20D ripstop nylon with a durable water repellent finish. So it's water resistant, stain resistant, and odor resistant. 
This thing's amazing. It'll be your new favorite blanket, whatever the circumstances, even if you just use it at the house. It's the best. Also, Rumpel has branched out and makes a ton of other amazing products. The Nanoloft travel blanket is the size of a Nalgene when packed down and can travel with you literally anywhere. And the Nanoloft flame blanket, that's the one I have, has a fire-resistant top layer, so you can sit next to a campfire with your puffy blanket and not have to worry about burn holes. Amazing. I also have the Everywhere Mat. This thing is a perfect little porch for my van. It's also perfect for a picnic or for hanging out at the crag. And the Everywhere Towel is super handy as well. This thing takes up no room at all. It's a full-size towel. It's so convenient for travel. It dries super quickly. And if you're like me and live in a van, it's a total must-have. I actually got rid of my regular towel because this thing was better. I just love Rumpel. Everything they make is amazing. Go to rumpel.com slash nugget and use code nugget at checkout to get 10% off your order. That's 10% off your first order when you go to rumpel.com slash nugget and use code nugget at checkout. And now back to the show. Um, I don't know if this will tie into what we've been talking about, but I have a note in front of me. Don, I'm curious what... Musical instruments and karate have in common. Does that bring it? Does that bring anything to mind for you? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> ab absolutely. In fact, they have quite a bit to do with climbing. And I, I, I've played the van banjo for a few years, very badly, by the way. And every once in a while, I, <laughs> I pick it up. It's down in the basement in one of our back rooms because my dog howls whenever I strum a single note. <laughs> this dog will howl. Will come from anywhere in the house. And, and how, so I can't even tune it anymore. He's so tuned into it. Um, but so I, I had some experience with that. I'm, I'm now taking karate. And um, one thing that is common between this and some of the drills that I'm talking about, the mental training for climbing, is when you're learning a new task, when you're learning a new skill, you do it slowly and you do it as perfectly as you can. So practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. And that's the same with playing an instrument, practicing a kata in karate, and practicing your footwork, for example. Mm. It's you do it slowly in as controlled a way. You're not on a stage in front of people playing an instrument, right? You're back in the back room where, you know, maybe the dog will hear you, but nobody else should hear you until you feel that you got something to show. But so that's what it has in common. Perfect practice makes perfect. And so, and I'll share with you another thing that I feel is one of our biggest missed opportunities is our warm ups. Yeah. Most, most of us, we just go back to the same old climbs and we just kind of paw through them and we're bored and we sometimes don't even like them, right? We're just like, oh, I just got to get my body warmed up, man. I'm going to go to 80 feet of meat. And <laughs> I, knew, I, knew you were gonna talk, I knew you were going to uh, throw out that <laughs> quote. <laughs> right? Right? 80 feet of meat. Oh, my there, gosh. Like, every week. Yep. And it is. It's boring. It's mind-numbing. It's not fun, but you do need to get warmed up, right? But every one of those is a missed opportunity to work on something. Because it's great. It's a controlled environment. It's safe. There's very unlikely that you're going to fall. You could begin building some of those new scripts. Let's say you want to really start building a script around resting, consciously resting. 
It's a great place. Pick out eight spots on the climb. Mm. Just rest. Like shake. Not where you stand, but straight arm, shaking, breathing, resting, body position, and experiment with different, maybe some more difficult places to rest. Maybe experiment with that, where it's steep or it's a weird, weird underclingy spot, right? Whatever. So every time, every warm up, I, gosh, if you don't, if you're not practicing some sort of a technique, I think they're leaving money on the table. Mm. That's great. Yeah. What What do you like to do? Do you like to pick one thing and focus on it in all your warmups for like a longer period of time? Or do you cycle through different ones? Do you, do you think of it ahead of time? Or is it just kind of intuitive? Like, oh, this would be a fun thing to focus on right now in today's warmup. I usually pick out whatever I think I'm starting to slip on, like, or where maybe the things I'm in, in whatever I'm currently working on as a goal like, are there certain things that are holding me back? Is it resting? Is it footwork? Is it drop knees? Is it, what is it? Is it breathing? Is it um, holding on lightly to conserve energy? You know, what is that thing? And I'll work on that. Mm. Um, if I have, if I have nothing else, then footwork and resting. Those are like my potatoes, you know, <laughs> Okay. footwork and rest. You can never be good enough at those things. Mm. Never, ever, ever, ever. Your endurance is directly proportional to the quality of your rests. Totally. Yeah. And uh, your footwork is that's the meat and potatoes and, and highly overlooked. I might, I might add, I can't tell you the number of people that I see who climb 512, 513, who, gosh, if they focused on their footwork for a few months, could up, up their game by at least a letter grade, maybe two. Mm. Nice. All right. Well, we've made our way through uh, most of the bullet points that I have as far as the book. I have one more big topic I want to talk to you about as far as uh, vertical mind is concerned. And then I have a couple listener questions for you that relate to this topic. And then I think it'd be fun to to circle back and ask you a couple questions about your first book, 50 Athletes Over 50. That kind of piqued my curiosity yeah. too. But let's do it. Yeah. Let's talk about co-creative partners you called this a huge missed opportunity and mentioned that, you know, we all kind of in a way have this expert built in coach that we underutilize. Can you tell me more about that? I, I, I have some questions about it. I think it's interesting. Um, it makes a lot of sense, but I, I think, or I suspect given my own experience, it's maybe a little bit harder to do in practice than maybe it sounds like depending on the partner and, and, you know, um, how perceptive they are and things like that. But tell sure. me, yeah, tell me more about this idea. So besides warmups, I think this is the next big missed opportunity because when we're rope climbing, certainly we're climbing with a partner and they're spending a lot of their time watching us climb. And in general, they see us really well for at least 30 feet. Then, then they do see us, but maybe, maybe less well for the, the, above that but they're getting a they watch us climb a lot right and so in general what we tend to do is there's not feedback i mean what most people say you got this right that's like the biggest thing some of you got this which is like well, maybe one of the worst things you can say to somebody mm. because it usually elicits this negative like no i don't you're not here right mm. okay. um yeah. it's actually a very loaded thing um, but in general, it's a big missed opportunity. So 
co-creative coaching is a scenario where you and your partner decide together to take advantage of the fact that you are watching each other climb and you're going to provide observations and feedback. When the climber gets back down, you're not yelling at them. That's not, they're not staying in the moment if you're yelling at them, right? So when they come down, you're going to give them any feedback that you have and, and, and typically in the form of, of an inquiry. And by inquiry, I mean a question. Not saying like, oh, your footwork was lousy. You really need to, you should, right? You should, you should. No, no, not that. We're talking being a coach. And in general, coaches won't tell you what to do. They'll inquire. So you, you really struggled up there. You were much more tired than the last time I saw you on this. What do you think was behind that? Hmm. Well, you know, I, I really had a hard time earlier. I didn't have my warm, you know. But you, you can just give observations. And and it's helpful, right? Because you can't see yourself climbing unless you videotape it, right? Which most people don't do, um, which is a great thing to do, but it's inconvenient as hell. So, but so co-creative coaching is you and your partner, you decide that you're going to enter this co-creative relationship for a climb or a season or whenever, right? And then the job of the person belaying is to watch. Like, don't watch the dog over there and don't watch the pretty man or woman, but don't, you know, don't get distracted. Just watch. And then when they come down, provide some feedback in whatever you observe. And I, and we don't have to be expert climbers or expert coaches for this. Most of us have an idea when things look wonky, right? We can pick up on something like something wasn't quite right there based upon how you've seen the other person climb, other things similar, what you know personally about the route itself, because you may have been on it. You're like, Gosh, you know, uh, did did you see did you see that rest over there? You know, I did. Did you think about using that? I did, but it didn't look okay. It it's just that simple, and it's helpful. Yeah, I think that's great. I think the key there might be the inquiries thing, like leading with questions instead of suggestions. Because um, because immediately when I thought of this, I was like, man, I I don't know. I I definitely have had some partners and huge credit to them who have unlocked things for me, big things. You know, sometimes it's just on that climb, like a little suggestion about using holds differently than I had been using them led to me sending it. Um, other times, you know, like, wow, that was a, that, that led to a deeper lesson, a deeper like pattern that I hadn't recognized in my behavior or things like that. So credit to those partners. Um, a lot of the time I feel like I'm, I'm very self-analytical. I'm I'm very um I, I like, you know, designing my own training. I think I understand my own climbing relatively well. And generally speaking, when I get suggestions from partners, like unsolicited suggestions, I feel as though I understand what's happening better than they do, you know, because it's it's my body, it's me doing the moves up here, whatever. But um, but yeah, what you just shared I think is so helpful if those partners I think the problem was not that they were willing to offer feedback. It was that they led with suggestions rather than just asking me questions because those questions would have guided me, you know, maybe pulled me out of a rut, like a way I was thinking and I was locked into one sequence or just, you know, gotten me to step back and find that curious place of like, okay, yeah, this isn't working out. So what, you know, let's get curious about this. What else could I tweak or change or try? And suggestions and shoulds, they typically elicit a, a shame response. Hmm. We either want to run away 
or we want to react or we want to push back or we want to justify we want to mm. right that's it's, it's nature we can't feel bad about being human that's yeah what, yeah right? yeah i definitely go to like justification or defensiveness when i yeah, oh i did that because oh, yeah, 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 yeah 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 that's interesting you know but it's and that's why you know we talk about you know learn some basic coaching techniques which you know, have the discussion. It's, it's feedback. It's inquiry. It's curiosity. It's not like I'm the great climber and you, you know, and I, Kevin, my coach is an awesome coach. He seldom tells me anything. And sometimes I wish he would, you know, because <laughs> I want the answer. But in general, he'll say, so well, I saw you did this big crossover move up there. What was going on with that? And I look up there and I'm going, God, there was another hole like right next to the thing that I didn't, wasn't even aware of because mm. I was just tunnel visioned on, on sighting this thing. Right. And so, cause we know, and this is, I, I did some coach training a number of years ago. And the whole idea behind co-creative coaching, coaching is that the person who has the problem has also has the answer. Mm. They're the one yeah. best in tune to develop the answer, embrace the answer and move forward. What a coach does is they're the facilitator of having that open perspective of inquiring, giving feedback, what they observe, you know, maybe echoing back to people what they're what they're thinking, what they're experiencing. Just having the having the conversation. Yeah. Do you have any recommendations for couples? I I think that always adds like an interesting layer to uh to this conversation of you know, coaching. <laughs> it's it's uh it's tricky business to offer coaching to your romantic partner if they're also your climbing partner. Do you have any suggestions for those people who are listening to this? <laughs> well, <laughs> it, it is tricky. Yeah. Um, and I, I actually think it's better to find somebody else who can help that feedback. <laughs> just there's yeah. so much emotional things that you know you want you want you want to maintain those right that's part of what makes that that relationship special is you've got all this kind of emotion there it's kind of what makes it cool and exciting and different than all other relationships i i have a hard time coaching my wife you know it's just it's just you know and i'm pretty darn good at the coaching piece of it but it just there's so much other stuff in there mm. so and i watch other people she climbs with and they 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 kill it with her you know that she'll listen to their feedback and she'll and so i I know it's maybe chickening out, but um. no, I think that's that that's a fair answer. It probably, st I mean, I I do see some couples who do it really well, but it probably starts with a really brutally honest conversation about is this something that would be good for us to try to do, or you know, right. do we know ourselves as a couple? Do we know our dynamic well enough to say like maybe we shouldn't do this? Maybe we should just leave the coaching to our other climbing partners, and then when we climb together, it's just for the pure enjoyment of it, or or yeah. whatever it is. And like, and like everything, you know, if you're, if they're thinking about it and they think it would serve them, try it. And you know what, if they find the experience at the end of the day is not better, bail. Just don't do it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, and it's not hard. It doesn't take a lot of time. It doesn't take a lot of investment. Just try it and mm. see, and maybe you're finding out, Hey, my goodness, we were actually talking about more things. Like it may open up some channels of communication that, that may have been, wanting to happen anyways. I, I don't know. So I, I'd say just be curious about it. Try it if it's not your bag. And I say that about all these things. Like if there's a part of the pre-climb ritual you don't like, bail on it. Don't do it. Yeah. Like if you're not in the previewing routes, you don't feel it serves you, don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I really like this, Don. I'm going to share a thought I that I've just kind of been having through this conversation because leading into this, you know, I had the thought of like, how are we going to be able to talk about fear of falling, fear of failure, um, and you know, performance anxiety, um, all these different things that pop up. But really, what you're talking about in the mental, you know, exercises that you lay out in your book, they're really universal. They they apply to all of these different things, no matter what it is that holds you back mentally. Like for me, it's, I think the things that, um, I think the thing I've been focusing on lately that I've, that I've started to realize like, okay, I'm making really good progress here, but this is something that I need to keep working on. This is a big thing is the narrative that I have around the level of climber that I am and the accomplishments that I need to have under my belt before I let myself go to the next level. I don't know if that makes sense to people, but like I'm, I'm an engineer, right? So I've always been someone who, like I've never skipped a grade in climbing. I've always done like multiple of the previous grade and then I try the next grade and I have this like perfectly shaped pyramid of experience and routes and things. And at this point, I, you know, I want to climb V12 this year. I want to level up. I want to climb 514. Um, and as far as bouldering goes, because I'm out here in Waco, I've been thinking about that. My script is like, I feel as though I should be able to climb all of the V10s before I let myself try more V11s and V12s. And the fact of the matter is some of the V11 or some of the V10s are harder for me than some of the V11s and 12s. I just, you know, it's, it's not a good way to think about progressing at climbing. It, it's it's like this obsession with being this perfectly well-rounded, capable climber at this level before I let myself go to the next stage. And I think it's really holding me back. And my- so looking, you, have the an you have the answer right there. Right. Like my looking for evidence is like, well, how many times have I climbed V10 in like two sessions? You know, I've, I've climbed V10 in one session. Uh, there was one that I did a couple years ago that I'm like, I think I could have flashed that if I'd had all the beta and I've done, you know, uh, most of the last, I don't, I don't know, like most of the last maybe dozen V10s I've done, I've done in a couple sessions. So I'm certainly ready for that next level. I just need to let myself go try them, let myself seek out the ones that suit my strengths a little bit better instead of obsessively always attacking weaknesses and things like that. So um, I just like that, on the surface, what you're talking about or this book, it seems as though it would be targeted towards climbers who struggle with fear of falling or with fear of failure. Maybe some of the more, you know, air quotes here, but obvious sticking points as far as mental training goes. But I think these practices and these exercises really apply to, to anything, um, anything that's holding you back mentally in your climbing. You're right, because they're all based on scripts. Mm. Right? What are these subconscious rules that we make for ourselves, these things that maybe have foundation and maybe don't, right? It's holding them up to the light. You're holding up to the light. Like, why do I have this rule about building this perfect pyramid? Is it serving me toward my objective or my, is it not? And you can look at it in light in your conscious mind and say, yes or no. Mm. You know, and it's just moving a shining light on it and saying, okay, I'm going to take some steps to kind of reprogram that like my uh, suggestion the question i would ask you is what would it be like if you just went and did it <laughs> and you left a hole in your pyramid what would that feel like what, what what like what might happen yeah yeah it's a good I question see a smile I'm... on your face i see a smile on your face and that tells me <laughs> you kind of know the answer right it would be like 
I would do it and it would be what it's going to be, right? Yeah. And I'd probably have fun at it. And I, I, once I left that behind, I probably wouldn't even be thinking about the fact that I had a hole in my pyramid. I'd be having fun. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, I, I think, I think, um, that's, I've been working on this, like I said, and that's my plan for this year is to, is to go seek out some of the harder things that would represent a new level for me that play to my strengths. And honestly, I think I'm, I think I can go do them. And I think when I do them, they won't necessarily feel like these big accomplishments because I'll know that, well, these other easier things are still hard for me, but then it won't matter. It'll come back to what it always comes back to, which is like, well, grades are, they don't really matter. It's not really a great representation of who you are as a climber. And, um, but it's also awesome, you know, to, to achieve the next level and kind of pop the bubble, I guess, you know, and, and break down some of that loftiness that we sometimes have with like, well, that's, I don't know, V12. That's crazy. Only other people climb V12. Um, it, it's like, it's like the star you get on your paper in second grade, <laughs> yeah. right? It's very temporary. Yeah. It feels good. You run home, you show your mom and then life moves on and climbing a certain grade is the same way, right? You're like, woo. And then, then all of a sudden it's like out of mind. You're not going back and saying, this is my climbing resume. Look. Yeah. Yeah. Back to it, right. It's a, it's a very temporary, yet at the same time, setting an intention of, I would like to do 514, whatever it is, right? It sets an intention so you can start doing the work to get there. Mm. But in and of itself, it's 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 a mile marker, right? It's, it's a mile marker that you're going to go by or you're going to take a right turn away from. I mean, something's going to happen, but... I like to go back to that star on the paper in second grade because it's kind of meaningless at this point, right? <laughs> at the time, it gives you a little goose, gives you a little excitement. Yeah. Pat on the back, right? But that's not how, why we live life or how we live life. Right, right. Yeah, that's great. Okay, a couple of listener questions for you. I really, I really like these. I got two questions from listeners. This is from Gromstoff. They write, I often find that when I'm working on a route that inspires me but scares me a bit, that I eventually reach a point where my desire to send outweighs my concerns about falling and I go for it without hesitation. I've always gotten there, but with certain routes, it takes a while. Do you have any strategies for getting to that point sooner? I thought that was such a good question. That's a really great question. Just a, a little analysis of the scenario. So the the reason that you that you stay with it is the route excites you, right? It excites you, excites you about doing it. That's the reason you're willing to go back and fall on it and hang on it and like have, have the whatever disappointment or whatever that is entailed on your road to get there. Um, and, but it initially scares you because it's unknown, but after you go and you've done it a few times, you know what the falls are like, you know, you know, intellectually, you know what it's going to be like, and then it's just a matter of doing it. Um, I think, I think in terms of doing it faster, I, I go back to, you know, looking at what you feel is holding you back in your climbing, not on that particular route, but in your climb, because chances are, it's probably a thing that's holding you back on that route. Like, is it your, is it your footwork? Is it the ability to rest? Is it, um, you know, your, your awareness of being able to improvise? Is it finding, you know, is it having that open focus enough to find those tricky things that make it easy for you? Or do you just go with the first time you try it, you find a way that works and you stay with it. So 
I guess I would encourage you to take the big view of it, the long view of it, because any particular route, I mean, I don't, I'd have to know the route, right? But in, in general, my response would be look to see what's holding you back in your climbing the most, and then focus on training that. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. So, you know, the the routes that are the routes that intimidate them, that's a clue. What, whatever it is that intimidates them is a clue. And maybe there's a more global thing happening there to, to work on. Yeah. And, and it must not intimidate you enough because you get on them. Right. And so I, I would almost say, you know, you could probably work on a little bit, maybe a pre-climb ritual might tone down that, that fear a little bit. Yeah. But you get on them. So it's not like you're not doing them. So bravo. Yeah. You know, I think you're probably 80 way up the mountain on that one. Maybe some of the things we talked about in this interview, pre-climb ritual may help to you to start that route with less intimidation, less fear, which will serve you well, by the way. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're 80 way up the 80% of the way up the mountain, you know. And I would say the reason that you're that you're not doing those routes is you got to look to see what you think is is holding you back as a climber, you know, and there probably are some strong things. Like I know I climb straight on a lot. It's how I learned to climb. And I just back steps to me are like a forced thing. I have to really, really work at it. And so I know as a general thing, that's an area that if I worked on, I would have more success more quickly on most. Routes. Mm. I have some thoughts I want to share if, if that's okay. Yeah. As far as that goes, this uh, this reminds me of. There's a number of scripts I think that popped up a lot at Smith Rock that uh, that this makes me think of, and I can kind of share two different scenarios. One is people, you know, friends of mine would often talk about a, a route that I hadn't done being scary. Like you know, certain routes would just have this kind of aura or this. Um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm totally drawing a blank here reputation yeah this reputation of being bold or scary or, or whatever and i would always kind of look at those friends and this is going to sound kind of judgmental but i would just i would you know I would, I would have this intimidation of this route that was just kind of from hearing all these little whispers about it from people but then i would think well all these friends of mine have actually done it and none of them are especially bold brave superhero climbers. They're normal people. They're friends of mine. You know, some of them I know aren't very brave. And I think I tend to be, you know, more comfortable on the sharp end than them. So then I would be like, I'm just going to go find out for myself. I'm just going to go check it out. Just find out for myself. I don't have to do it. You know, I can, whatever, to just go, just go play on it and just go see what it's all about. And I, th I think that's a script that, or, or a mantra that I would come back to is just go find out, just go check it out. And similarly, I remember uh, for years, you know, my, one of my staple areas at Smith was the agrigoli because, you know, spring and fall, it's it's really good conditions in the shoulder seasons. There's lots of hard routes to do up there. And I got to a point where I'd kind of done all of them up to like 14A and I was, I was you know, trying bad man a lot and, and just had kind of run through all the things I could do. But there was this I knew about this route that was just up the hill from the quickening. It's this 12D called I think it's called spewing. Never got done. I'd never seen anybody on it. I didn't know anything about it. I just knew that it was in the guidebook and it was a 12D and it was there. And I had kind of talked to a climbing partner about it years before. And he was like, oh yeah, like me and Logan, like this really strong local guy, like they had gone up there and tried it and they couldn't figure it out. And they thought maybe it had broken. 
and uh, like a hold had broken. And I just had it in my mind for like five years that like, oh, that thing's hard. It broke. They couldn't figure it out. It probably doesn't go, you know? And finally, one day I was like, I'm just going to go see for myself. And I went up the route and it was really cool and it needed a little work. I had to reinforce some holds and kind of clean it up a little bit. And it took, a, you know, it took a little while to figure out the beta, but it was all there. And then I did it and it felt like 12D and I left draws on it and then everyone started doing it. And now <laughs> like, you know, a bunch of my friends have all climbed the route and it's just this, it's another great 12D to do in the goalie. And I was like, wow, I let myself, I let that little whisper, you know, this thing probably doesn't go. It might've broken. No one, you know, no one knows there's this kind of mystery around it. I let that keep me from trying it for five years. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And so just in general, the sooner you get an experience in climbing, unless it's an accident, right? The sooner you get an experience in climbing, the quicker you're going to advance as a climber. That's just it, right? The sooner I get an experience in climbing, it just makes me accelerate. So yeah, and uh, I like I get this thing. I, I love Mountain Project. It's really a, a great tool and everything. But I don't look at it. Like if I'm planning on going doing a route, I don't read any of the comments. The only thing I will listen to is a very trusted friend. It has to be like one of maybe three people I know, right? Like there's only like three people I will take advice from on the nature of a route, how bad the approach is, you know, any just because I found so many times, I just, I'd finally go do something. I'm like, man, my perception and your perception is entirely different. Mm. And so, yeah, I, I love that. Just, just go do it, you know, get the experience, have enough skill to get out of Dodge. If it ends up being something you don't want to do, or you feel is not serving you well, <laughs> you know, but just go do it. I love that. Awesome. All right. This question is from Caden. Caden writes, I've been climbing for only two years and I'm still learning loads and loads of new moves. While I am not scared of falling, the uncertainty of new moves often makes me hesitate. Are there any drills or ways to practice commitment when you don't know what is going to happen? Of course, we've already talked about that in this conversation, but do you have any additional thoughts for Caden? I think there's some great work done by Dale Goddard a long time ago talking about engrams. It's a physical, it's a physical script, basically. It's a it's a script that you build up based upon the feel of a certain type of move. And the sooner you get those experiences and the more you build up that arsenal of backsteps, those arsenals of similar kinds of experience, you begin building up those engrams. I I kind of refer them as physical scripts. But you know, I think just do climbs that aren't just natural for you. Like if you you'll you'll advance more as a climber by doing things that are different than what you've already done. So if you tend toward the crimpy face roots, go do some dihedrals, do some arets, do some just expose yourself to those experiences and accumulate those different experiences and don't get caught up in the result. Not, not like, oh, well, I climb 11A on this, but I can only do 10B here. That's baloney. I mean, that will hold you back so much and being having that ego in the way. Just go and experience different, different kinds of climbing, experience those different moves as quickly and as vigorously and have fun with them. Laugh at them when you can't do them. Like, 
like one of the scripts that I have is when I when I hit a crux on a route, I had a part. I didn't even know I did this, but my one of my partners in rifle said, every time you reach a crux, I can tell where the crux is because you giggle. <laughs> I would get to the I get to a crux and I would just be like, <laughs> oh. you know, I didn't even know I did it until he pointed it out to me. So just laugh at it and enjoy the process <laughs> and uh, realize that you're learning and learning is you don't learn com- in comfort. Mm, that's, yeah, I like that. You learn at the edge of your comfort level. That's where you best learn, right at the edge of that comfort level. There's something called the zone of proximal development. And this is something we, Jeff actually introduced me to. And if you picture a, a cylinder where at the top of the cylinder are things that you just absolutely could never do. And at the bottom of the cylinder are things that you can do like you live with no trouble. There's a zone in the middle that's where you'll learn optimally. Mm. It's when things are just hard enough, but not too hard. Yeah. And so, you know, that's where that's where you're going to get the most out of your efforts is that at, at the edge of that comfort, that zone of proximal development. Mm-hmm. Well, awesome, Don. There's a lot of good stuff in here. Um, I'm curious. I want to ask you a couple questions about 50 over 50 athletes over 50. But is there anything we missed? Anything you want to touch on as far as vertical mind is concerned before we move on? I, I don't think so. I guess the main takeaway I would encourage, I would encourage everyone to um, a embrace mental training, incorporate it into your warmups, and and you're just going to see things take off. Okay, mm-hmm. you're climbing, and it doesn't take a lot of investment. You know what? If you find after a few weeks it doesn't serve you, we'll bail on it and just focus on fingerboarding or whatever does benefit you. But I would encourage you to try it out. I think you'll be blown away. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Okay. 50 athletes over 50. I think, um, yeah, I'm really, I'm really interested in just hearing what some of the big takeaways were for you in researching this book. I mean, we're all headed there eventually. I'm 33, so I've got a ways to go before I'm 50, but it's already something that I'm thinking about a little bit, you know, like I want to make sure like you, I want, I want to age well. I want to feel like an athlete when I'm older. I want to keep climbing for a long, long time. So yeah, you've done a lot of research on what has allowed climbers at older ages to stay in love with the sport. What did you learn from that research? Um, I have a couple more questions here. What elements of love for climbing have the most staying power and allow climbers to enjoy the sport for many decades? Um, yeah, any themes there? Yeah, so there's, in, in the research, I, I, I asked a lot of interview questions of these, these folks, and there's a lot of reasons that they were in their sport. Some of them just like to be competitive. Some were fiercely competitive. Some of them... I should ask, what, what sports did you focus on? Were these Was this a wide array of sports? Was this mostly, mostly outdoor sports? It's wide array. Uh, you know, I even had a couple of flyers. I somebody was a tap dancer, and I included that because I was just curious. Like, it may not be considered a sport, but it has shares a lot of common things. Yeah, you know, there was bodybuilders, there was runners, cyclists, mountain unicyclists was one of my favorites. <laughs> um, triathletes, uh, canoers, like all kinds, all kinds of different sports. I wanted to get a good, good cross section. So, if I think. It, there's lots of different reasons that a lot of motivations for why people were, you know, some of it was for some people, community was most important. 
Um, but it, the the majority, and this was a big this is a big revelation for me, is that the the biggest reason that and the thing that and the motivation that helped people stay at it the longest and have the most fun was just that they loved the play aspect of it. Like they had maintained the ability all of us have as children, that just that love of movement, the love of uh, envisioning things happen, that improvision that happens, that all the things associated with play. And uh, this occurred to me when I was actually at a, at a lecture from, I think last name was Rady. He was a, a psychologist for, maybe a psychiatrist from Harvard. He wrote a book called Play. And I was listening and he was lecturing. I'm like, that's it. That's it. The most successful ones, they have maintained this joy of movement, this joy of play, because many of them, they're not performing as well as they were. And um, so that is, that's, that's like one of the key findings is that if we can maintain the play aspect in our sport, the improvisation aspect of it, just the joy of the movement itself, you know, and as it's funny, I, you know, I'm 60 now and I, I hang around with people kind of in this, in the decades surrounding that probably more than I hang out with people much, much younger. Um, they do. I mean, they, they just love it. They don't go out and say, I got to send this, bro. you know, no, they're like, Hey, you know, I heard this route's really good. I'm out here with my dog and my friends and, you know, I'm having a good time and I'm above ground and taking breaths and, you know, <laughs> just enjoying the things. And God, you know, this day really sucked because it snowed. Remember when it snowed on us, you know? So they maintain a, a very playful aspect. Mm. So that's that's one major thing. So the more we can do to um, kind of maintain that joy, the joy, that's why we're at it. We Most of us don't get paid for it, right? It's, it's We do it for nothing, right? It's It's joy. And the more you can tap into that, the better. Another major finding was that the, one of the key aspects of being at it on a sustained basis is you just need to be able to innovate because at some point there may come a time when you can't do what you did anymore. Right? Like I met a lot of people who are runners. They started out runners in, in high school. And by the time they were 40, like their knees were going or they had some injuries or they, you know, whatever. And so they started cycling or they they innovated what they did to work around their environment or their new life situation. Maybe they used to like to ski and they no longer live by a mountain. They're happy just to pivot and change what they do. So I, I think that having that flexibility to be able to innovate and say, well, if I can't do that anymore, I can do this. And it still gives me that, that joy of play, that joy of movement. Hmm. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And it, it makes me excited to think about that in the context of climbing, because I mean, that really is what is so unique and great about climbing. There's so many ways to be a climber and to pursue challenging things in climbing. You know, you can pivot to from bouldering in Waco to climbing pumpy long routes in Maple Canyon. You know, it's a lot, lot easier on the body in a lot of ways, or, you know, climbing fun, rompy trad routes in the mountains or whatever it is. There's so many different ways to uh, to still be within the sport, but to mix it up and adapt. And climbing is, there's something unique about it. And some research that one of Jeff's students did on um, flow, achieving the flow state in climbing versus other kinds of sports. And climbing has a unique thing where 
you know, typically when you hit a flow state, it's that's something that's pretty challenging for most sports. I mean, if you're out for an eight minute mile run, most people who are four minute milers are not going to have a flow experience. But in climbing, it's different. You could be a very accomplished climber and on some five, seven in the mountains and just be having a very flow-like experience. Huh, that's interesting. So, and I think Jeff's going to continue to do some of that research and I don't know where, where it's gone or where it's headed, but that's cool, right? And I've had it myself. I've been on some climbs in Eldo where they're not physically challenging, but man, I'm in a different place, <laughs> right? I am just in a place of joy, of flow, of breathing. I'm so in tune and I didn't have to be climbing some 511 thing, right? So, mm -hmm. so. I have a note here in front of me about 50 athletes over 50. Duct tape and bailing wire. What does that mean? So, so I, I say, you know, I'm once I hit over 50, and especially now I say that somebody starts complaining about Oh, you know, I got I got this elbow thing, or I've got this, or I've got that, and I say, you know, you know, the warranty's up. <laughs> I say the warranty's up from now on. It's duct tape and bailing wire, which means you know you're going to have to compromise, and and also you know you kind of got to learn to live with the things. Like I was I was working on this route um, at the gym it was one of my projects, and it involved some crazy heel hook to make a pretty difficult clip, and I was doing I've done it. I don't know, half a dozen times. And I was up there one day and I felt something behind my, the knee I did the heel hook with, I felt something weird. It's just some weird thing. And so I came down and it's okay, but it's just, it's, it hurts a little bit. And that's the duct tape and bailing wire. I've just, I've moved to doing some other things. I'm not going to go back to that because why should I? I would just be dumb. So I've stayed away from that kind of stuff. And in some ways you got to innovate. You got to stay, you got to say, well, if I can't do that, what can I do? Mm. Not, not dwell on the what can I do? I could have been all bummed out, like oh, I invested two weeks in that, ah, yeah, whatever. You know, it'll come, it'll go. I'm going to find something that you know I can do, and eventually it'll heal, right? It, it, they tend to. So that's why I, I duct tape and bailing wire <laughs> from now on is duct tape and bailing wire. That's awesome. So I can, yeah, I can see from everything you've shared, a lot of the lessons that have influenced you now. You're 60 and you've learned from all these uh, athletes over 50 years old. I'm 33 right now. Is there anything you wish you had known when you were my age? Do you have any advice for me and for the rest of us that are around that same age, 20s, 30s? You know, I, I, I just read a book called Running with the Buffaloes. And it's a it's a, about CU, the CU cross country team. And I was a cross country runner back when I was in college. And gosh, reading that book, I mean, those I thought we trained hard. I thought we trained hard. This team trained really hard. And I just was thinking back and looking at where I am now. I mean, when I kind of wish I had pushed a little more. Hmm. I kind of wish I had put, because you'll never get back there. I mean, once once you're in the duct tape and bailing wire, you know, like I tried running a little bit last year and then my Achilles started like acting up and I said, nah, running's not for me, I guess, right now. Um, so I guess, you know, dream big. Mm, that's Dream cool. big. Be smart, you know, invest in yourself, invest in a coach if you can. Um, just really you know, dream big and go after it. It's not going to get any easier. 
And around mid-30s, I think, is where the physiological changes really start kicking in. You start, on average, we lose a half a pound of lean muscle mass a year after around the age of 32, I think is the what's the scientists say. But it's, you know, it starts getting harder, so get after it. Get after it. And then just know it's going to change. Know it's going to shift and embrace it, you know, and know that you've got a lot of runway. I mean, there's there's people in their 60s and probably by the time I hit my 70s, I'm hoping there's even more people in their 70s still getting sick with it and, you know, having fun and getting inspired and get, getting out and doing things that inspire them. Yeah. Yeah, that, that lights a fire under my ass. That's great. I really like that. And uh, and touching on what you said about, you know, I've, I've heard all the same research, like after age 32, 35, whatever, it's, you know, you start losing muscle mass, it gets harder to maintain strength. Something that I find a lot of comfort in is that I think my, I, I, I'm just so much smarter now than I was in my 20s. My approach is so much smarter. I think the... Um, the intelligence of my, my, my wisdom, what, you know, the lessons learned, the, uh, the intelligence, the thoughtfulness that I put into my approach is, has the potential to buy like much more than make up for any loss in physiology or any changes in physiology, you know, like I'm, yeah, I, I just wasted a lot of time just doing dumb stuff and, and not being focused enough and not honoring what my body needed. And, you know, for me, it was trying to stay too skinny for most of my 20s and just kind of hamstringing myself when it came to getting stronger. And I think that, you know, the things you learn, the lessons learned, the hard lessons, learning from those, being smarter, I think uh, I think that is why there's so many examples of people that are thriving and climbing their hardest in their, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s. There's so many examples of that now, so. And yeah. one thing related to the half a pound a year, you got to realize that's taken on a broad swath of humanity. Yeah, it's, a, it's okay. an it's average. It's taken yeah. on a very broad swath. They're not people like you and I. You and I would be considered outliers, right? And so the study also goes, the same studies also go to include, the reason for that is mostly socio-behavioral, mm. which means our diet changes. You know, we get jobs that are demanding. We have kids. We have share. And so we just don't focus on it, right? Right, right, right. Just my example of how we started this off. I dropped a ton of fat in like six weeks by a socio-behavioral change. Yeah. I just made up my mind I was going to do it, and I employed some winning tactics, and you know, and now I'm feeling that in my climbing big time. So you have way more control. You're not a statistic. You know, you are mm. an individual that has way more, way more to say about your personal trajectory. Um, and, and also I, I also feel I'm a way better climber than I was 20 years ago. Mm. That's awesome. I'm a smarter climber. I can break down sequences way better than I could back then. I can optimize things much more quickly. I more tune and tune in my body because I don't like the duct tape and bailing wire. So I, you know, so I'm a better climber. I love it. I love it, Don. So you uh, you mentioned briefly that you've written six books. We've been talking about Vertical Mind and we've been talking about 50 Athletes Over 50. I'll be sure to link to those books in the show notes for people that want to check them out and read more. But your other books, are there any of your other books that you feel would be really helpful for my audience to check out that haven't gotten the attention that Vertical Mind has? Um, yeah, I'm yeah, curious. There's a book that I often give away when I give talks because I I got a few boxes of them and I just never really did anything with it. I I went back when I was a um, a director of engineering. I used to do this book club, a bunch of managers. We would 
read books about management topics and everything. And we would have discussions around it and we'd have lunch together and build community. But I always loved the, um, the what they call the leadership fables, um, where it's a story about a team that some, something happens, right? There's one called Five Dysfunctions of a Team. It's about a team that's struggling with viability of the company. And, you know, they, they have this journey together and they learn some lessons. So I know the, la- the last book that I wrote um, is called The Climb. And it's about a team uh, working at a company who is developing a new product to expand, to grow their, their business. And they have all kinds of challenges because they've got different personalities. So it's the it's the first book of fiction that I wrote and I blast doing it. And so I I, I usually give, I give one of these away at the, one of the last talks I gave. And the woman got in contact with me. She said she's just read maybe half of it. It's already helped her. Mm. So I've actually actually lit, lit a fire under me a little bit. Like I should probably, I should probably get that out there more because it's it's you know it applies life. It uses climbing to help with life lessons in a team. That's awesome. It's called the climb. Called the climb. Is it on Amazon? I know Vertical Mind. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, I'll, it's on Amazon. I'll be sure to find it and link to it. What's the next book? You know, I really don't know. You know, when you write. When you write a book, you want to write more. Uh, I haven't, I haven't quite decided, but I think I probably do have one in me. It's just right now I'm so busy climbing and enjoying that. that I, <laughs> it's it's about it's awesome. Three hundred hours. It takes me about three hundred hours to write a book. Wow, three hundred hours. Okay. How do you that's like to do that? Got, do have... Once you have the information, that's like once you kind of have the information. Mm. Like if you're an expert in something, it's about three hundred hours to to write a. 200 ish page uh, book. What does that look like for you when you're in that mode, when you're writing, let's say when you were writing uh, vertical mind, actually, I don't even know how, how you and uh, Jeff broke that up. If you both wrote parts of it or how that looked, but um, do you just go all in? Is it full immersion? Do you just work on it every day until it's done? Or do you chip away at it, you know, a couple hours a day and spread it out or have days of the week set aside for it? What is your, what does your writing practice look like? I wrote, uh, it would be different now than it was then. Cause I actually was probably working 60 hours a week as a director of engineering when we wrote vertical mind. Wow. So, um, I basically always starts out with an outline, right? Like, what do you think, what do you think the book's about? And believe me, it never turns out to be about that. Mm. You, you start out and the book develops a life of its own. So that's another lesson is it's going to be different, right? And you're probably going to write it five times because you're going to learn as you go through, but you start out like this is, this is the path. Here's the chapters. And, and Jeff and I did that. And then we kind of said, oh, I want to write this. I want to write this part. I'll write about this. I'll write about that. And then once we started reviewing the pieces, <laughs> it turns out that those chapters got munged around and became different things with different names. And the, the morphology of the book began to take better shape once we had the, the details of it. And I was sometimes writing 15 minutes every morning. I would just get up, I'd go, I'd see where I was try to get back in, in my headspace of what I was writing about, write 500 words and then head off to the rest of my day. And cause you know, you're going to, you're going to rewrite it and write it. So there's no sense in like striving for, to write like Longfellow, right? Mm. It's got to capture the ideas, tell stories, you know, every point I, I learned this from uh, one of the best motivational speakers on the planet, Les Brown. Mm. 
Um, this mostly relates to speaking, but it take it to heart with with writing too. Every point should have a story, and every story should have a point. Mm. So, if you want to get across something, an ideal idea to someone, one of the best ways is to tell a story about it because we love stories. And but if I sit there and narrate to you and tell you you got to do this or here's the way, you're going to zone out. So um, it's really breaking it up, telling stories. And I, I'm a storyteller. I've always been a storyteller. So um, kind of breaking it up and enjoying. I, I enjoy the writing when I'm in the mode. I, I, I really do. That's great. Yeah. I've never heard of that speaker. I will definitely look into look into that person because I, I really like that quote. I'm going to carry that with me. I think, yeah, that definitely feels relevant for what I do. So, yeah. Thanks for that. I like that. Yeah, definitely. Right. Every story has a point. Every point has a story. And when you're speaking, especially when you're speaking, because you have an audience sitting there gawking at you, right? And if you want them to walk away with a teaching point, the worst way to do it is try to teach them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We all have teach aversion in this country because we've all been trying to teach to so long. <laughs> we are still traumatized by the experience. <laughs> but if you can tell a story and say, well, the point of that story is this. Mm. And our brains are kind of wired for stories. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's why analogies are so powerful too. Yeah. Love that. Uh, Don, what is something you wish people spent more time thinking about? You know, having fun. Nice. Having fun. You know, I, and I've been there, right? And so I've been brought up, I get my project a rifle and I had a one hanging yesterday and I was, I kicked the thing. Like I remember I, I didn't send beer run one day when I thought it was in the bag. I fell at the very top. Like if you've ever, have you ever been on that? Yeah, thing? yeah, yeah. I've done I've that done one. The, you were I've above the, the tombstone. tombstone. Yeah. <laughs> I've done the tombstone thing. And I was up where you shoot up to the underclay underneath the little roof before the run out to the anchors. It's not quite over and yet. I, <laughs> and I blew it. And oh, man. I, like I rushed it. I rushed it. And I was so, I was mad. And I don't get mad. Like in general, I'm easygoing Irishman, I guess, but I, I in general, it takes a lot. And that, I, it threw me off. And, you know, it, it, we're out there doing it for fun, you know? And so just in, enjoy the process, enjoy the process. Even the, even the sucky times, like I, one of my, one of the five things I do in one of the talks I give is embrace the suck. Because mm. what we do is hard. And why, when we do something hard, are we surprised when it ends up being hard and there's some suckiness about I'm it. I'm so fascinated by that, Don. <laughs> totally. Why is that? Like I, I cannot, most of us are like this. Most people listening to this podcast are like this, I'm sure. But uh, it's certainly my personality. I am obsessed with challenging myself, with with doing things that are going to you know, push me out of my comfort zone, cause me to have to grow. And then I am fixated on things being harder than they should be you know, air quotes around should. And those two things just shouldn't go together. Like pick a lane, you know, like either do the thing that's hard or do something easy, but don't do something hard and then be, you know, frustrated or surprised that it's that it's challenging, that it's not happening easily. I just think it's fascinating that our brains do that. I think so many people do that. We signed up for it, right? We signed up yeah. for it. If, in fact, if it wasn't hard, we probably wouldn't like it. Yeah, exactly. We'd be bored. So in my talks, I talk about just embrace the suck. Realize mm. it's going to suck sometimes. You're not, no one gets out of this game unscathed. Like there's going to be suck. And 
you just look at it and say, I signed up for it, you know, and the suck never lasts. The suck is always temporary. Mm. Okay. And just have that mindset that, yes, it's going to suck. Yes, I'm, I'm in the suck right now. And just look at it, laugh at it, embrace it, joke about it, because it ain't going to last and you're going to grow from it. Who inspires you these days? Uh, you know, I get inspired by watching, watching people who just started climbing or watching little kids climb. That's a cool answer. It, it, it's just fascinating, you know? And back when I used to climb in the gunks, I would almost be jealous of people climbing high exposure for the first time or climbing son of it's a, that's a classic five, six in the gunks, which if you're, if you're a climber and you can climb that and you're ever near the gunks, you should go do that. And if you go on a weekend, expect to wait in line. But, but it's like just having that, that joy, right? It's like, they just love it. And it, we can sometimes get jaded. We've been at it for 30 years, you know, and it's easy to lose that. So I, there's this little girl who also is coached. She's at the gym. My coach also coaches her. And I just love watching her climb. And yeah, she has meltdowns once in a while. She's a little kid. But watching her go through that and seeing the growth as a person that she's going through and knowing how that's going to serve her for the rest of her life, it just, it just is awesome. Also, good coaches inspire me. Like mm. I read this, this Running with the bu Buffalo and yeah, I'm going to look that book up. I'll link to it for people. Yeah, look that book up. Um, it's, I mean, if you're a runner and you've ever run cross country, I, I listen to some of the stories. I'm like, that could be me. I mean, that could have been my team. Different context, different place, but similar antics, you know, similar, you know, it was a guy's team. So similar guy to guy things happening, you know, not similar like tragedy, you know, tragedy, whatever they are, you know, bad things that happen. And it just brought me back and I can almost remember standing by there's a canal in Rochester that we used to run on like these these long runs in the heat of August. And it almost brought me back there. Like I could almost feel the heat and the smell of the humidity <laughs> and taste the Gatorade. Like it was, it was really fun. <laughs> you think there's lessons in there for climbers? You know, I think there is, you know, these, these there's tragedy in there there's coaching in there there's community in there mm. there's hard work there's results from hard work there's injury mm -hmm. there's there's things in there um That's cool. not 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 being a runner i don't know how much but for me it was just like i loved that book it brought me so many good memories and uh you know maybe when maybe when i'm done climbing maybe i'll innovate and start running again i don't know well, <laughs> Duct tape and bailing wire. <laughs> What's next for you? So this year I'm focused on getting this, just having achieving my intention of climbing 513. Uh, last year I did a lot of trad climbing. I had a trip to Yosemite. I went to the Verdun Gorge. I did some different kinds of things. So this year is really trying to turn back the clock, the clock. Nice. And trying to get back to where I was 10 years ago and do it and just enjoy the process and um, find some cool climbs to do. Maybe they'll be in Rifle. Staunton State Park isn't far from here, so chances are there'll probably be some there. Um, enjoying being with my wife and our dog and going on some trips, climbing trips. 
Um, probably don't plan on doing any big trips this year. We've been doing a lot of traveling over the past since I mm. like retired, whatever that means. So this year I'd like to stay closer to home and uh, just get in shape and kind of enjoy it. Well, that's awesome. I'll be rooting for you. I'll be rooting for you with the big goal with your climbing. And I will be very excited to see what idea comes to you and uh, becomes the next book, whatever that is. But it's it's been so good to talk to you. I really appreciate your time. We've been going for a couple hours now. This has been an awesome conversation. Um, lots of really good stuff in here that I think most people listening are going to relate to in some some capacity. We all have mental hangups when it comes to climbing. And like you said, that's a very underutilized part of our preparation most of the time. So thanks for being here. Before I let you go, let people know where they can find you. Um, like I said, I'll link to your books in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. But if uh, people want to Google you on their own or find you on Instagram, let people know where they can find you and learn more. Yeah. So you can, uh, verticalmindbook.com is kind of the best place to go. And you can find books and there's a free ebook on there so that people can that people can get um you can find me on facebook don mcgrath and if i pop up with a climbing helmet you'll know it's me uh, <laughs> just friend me i've got lots of climbers who are friends i uh, on instagram i don't do that much on instagram but look me up on instagram too i think it's don mcgrath 513 yeah i think i'm pretty sure that's that's my handle there and i'd love to connect with you and this has been an absolute pleasure, Stephen. I really appreciate you you uh, inviting me to be on this. And the conversation was fantastic. It was super fun, and I feel like we we found some found some cool things that will be helpful for your audience. Yeah, I think so too. Some good nuggets. Hope it was helpful to you guys listening. Once again, I'll put all things Don McGrath in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. Thank you guys for tuning in today. Hope you learned something. And thanks again, Don. And for everyone listening, we'll see you next time. Hey, friends, before you go, quick shout out to all of our sponsors for this episode. As always, you can find links to all of our sponsors and you can see the coupon codes for their products in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com or just by scrolling down right there in your podcast app. I make it really easy for you guys to get great deals on some of my favorite products. So check them out. Scroll down right there in your podcast app or check out the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. And as always, I put tons of goodies in the show notes. So for this episode, you can find links to all the things, videos and books we talked about, related podcast episodes, my guests' links, etc. You can find all of that stuff conveniently linked for you at thenuggetclimbing.com. Just find this episode and all of the show notes will be there, including timestamps so you can scroll around and find some of the best nuggets from this interview if you want to listen to those sections again. And as always, thank you guys so much for listening. If you want even more great content, if you've been loving the show, I do have a Patreon. I have tons of bonus episodes over there, almost 50 bonus episodes. They're called follow-ups that I've published so far with past guests from the show. Those bonus episodes are some of my favorite interviews that I've done on the podcast. You can get access to all of those and ad-free episodes and more for $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash thenuggetclimbing to learn more. There's a link for Patreon right there in your podcast app as well. Thank you guys for listening. I appreciate all of the support. Happy climbing. I hope you have an amazing week and we will see you next time. Oh,
Cause no one can do it like we do 